Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is MPB News. Hi, this is Karen Brown. Thanks for checking out the Mississippi Edition podcast. If you like what you hear, click subscribe, hit like, or leave us a comment if your app has that feature. Then find other MPB podcasts by searching MPB Think Radio on your favorite podcasting platform. Thanks. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Thursday, September 10th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, proponents for medical marijuana are hitting the road to advocate for ballot initiative 65. But some health officials say a constitutional amendment protecting the drug is a step in the wrong direction. Then the capital city is fighting food insecurity with a pilot program featuring Jackson chef Nick Wallace. Plus, in our book club, Furious Hours, Murder, Fraud, and the Last Trial of Harper Lee. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Supporters of medical marijuana are working to educate voters about an initiative on the November ballot that would make its use legal in Mississippi. With events this week in the capital city and on the coast, members of Medical Marijuana 2020, the organizing group behind Initiative 65, are working to gain momentum ahead of the November election. Initiative 65 would allow Mississippians with one of 22 debilitating conditions such as cancer, seizures, and multiple sclerosis to obtain a prescription from a doctor to use medical marijuana. Jamie Grantham is Communications Director for Medical Marijuana 2020. The language of Initiative 65 says of a safe, regulated, self-funded, that's important, it's not on taxpayers' shoulders, and clearly defined medical marijuana program that will truly help patients who are suffering here in Mississippi. It has strict oversight and accountability immediately as soon as voters approve it. It is the choice for patients and for physicians, and it is our turn. There is no reason to be against a patient being able to go to their doctor and have a conversation about a potential treatment option, and there is no reason why a doctor should not be able to use their professional judgment to recommend a treatment that is helping so many across the nation if it would benefit their patients. Angie Calhoun is a Mississippian whose son took up residence in a state with a regulated medical marijuana program. Calhoun's son, Austin, was an active child until he turned 16 and began suffering from seizures and stomach problems that led to severe weight loss. She says medical marijuana allowed Austin to get off the other 17 prescribed drugs he was taking to combat his ailments. For Austin, medical marijuana worked. It subsided the horrible effects of his debilitating medical conditions. I remember thinking to myself, after he had used medical marijuana, that this seems like my vibrant, happy son again. And that was truly a blessing to me. I treasure every moment that we spend together, never taking his health for granted. Because today, without medical marijuana, Austin's seizures, pain, 
and vomiting would return. If Mississippians vote for Initiative 65, it would bring my son back home to me and his loved ones. Jamie Grantham says opponents of the initiative are planting seeds of skepticism about the accessibility of marijuana should the ballot measure pass. She affirms public smoking will be prohibited and dispensaries will be regulated. This is not so much a question that I've actually ever gotten, so much as something I've heard the opposition saying, and this is not true. They say there will be a pot shop on every corner and they don't want that in Mississippi. I don't want that either, and that's not what we're talking about. Under Initiative 65, this same free market system that prevents a community from having more drug stores or grocery stores or retail space than they can support will be in play here. The legislative alternative 65A, on the other hand, is not silent on this one issue. They actually do mandate a limited license cap, which has created many problems in states with this approach. It is not recommended. The problems include monopolies, lawsuits, delays, and patient access issues. For Jim Perry, a member of the State Board of Health, Initiative 65 is the wrong way to pursue the issue of medical marijuana. He tells our Desiree Frazier if the measure passes, it would become a part of the state constitution, giving it protection no other drug has. Mississippians are a caring people, and they want people who are in pain to get care. But Initiative 65 is the wrong way. Initiative 65 gives special constitutional protections to the marijuana industry, and any changes to any aspect of this program would require another statewide vote. Uh, that This is an out-of-state $14 billion industry, and the Initiative 65 would put them out of the reach, make them untouchable by the legislature or governor, and would allow broad marijuana use under the guise of medicine. No tax revenue for the benefit of schools, roads, or communities, and the special protections and the constitutional amendment would allow the sale of marijuana almost anywhere. And that's why we say if you like big tobacco, you're going to love big marijuana because the tobacco industry, which now owns a big part of the marijuana industry, they said cigarettes were healthy. And now marijuana is telling us the same story. If marijuana is medicine, it should be treated like any other medicine. And no medicine has the same special protections in our state constitution like the marijuana would after Initiative 65. They say that the initiative would not allow uh, a dispensary to be near a school, um, to be near any place that would um, negatively impact a community or present a, a bad light, that, that all of that would be taken into consideration. It's important. It's important to read the actual language of Initiative 65 and, and not depend on what people say or what they hope it might, might mean. Initiative 65 specifically says that no community can have any sort of zoning restrictions on marijuana dispensaries or cultivators or growers. That anywhere you allow commercial activity like a pharmacy, you would have to allow a dispensary, a grower, or a cultivator. There is a restriction that you can't be within 500 feet of a school, but there are lots of places in Mississippi where you have residential and commercial activity in the same area because of mixed-use zoning. You cannot, uh, unlike liquor stores or even fast food restaurants that cities across the state uh, have, have 
special requirements for to protect the integrity of their community, you would not be able to do that with marijuana dispensaries. Are you opposed to medical marijuana or opposed to this particular initiative? We're opposed to Initiative 65. There, there are already four FDA-approved, Food and Drug Administration-approved medicines that people in Mississippi are using now that are based on cannabis. And with more research, we could get more safe medicines. But if, it's a, if marijuana is a medicine, treat, treat it like a medicine. That means research and testing and knowing what's in it and having an ability to control dosage. There's not a single doctor that's ever said, take four joints and call me in the morning. Smoking and vaping is not medicine. The American Lung Association will tell you that. The American Heart Association will tell you that. And most doctors will tell you that inhaling something is not good for your health. We, we should have more safe approved medicines that we know that that's safe for patients and we know that it's safe for communities. Initiative 65 does not do that. Jim Perry is a member of the State Board of Health. An alternative initiative, 65A, passed by the legislature, is also on the November ballot. It doesn't list rules or regulations for medical marijuana usage. Critics say it's designed to confuse voters. Coming up, the capital city is fighting food insecurity with a pilot program featuring Jackson chef Nick Wallace. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Allison Walker, the lady auto mechanic, host of AutoCorrect. If you're enjoying this podcast, try my podcast, AutoCorrect. We help steer you in the right direction with your car problems. Find me on any podcast platform or at autocorrect.mpbonline.org. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Access to healthy food is a global challenge and one that impacts thousands of U.S. cities and over 40 million people nationwide. This crisis has been further exacerbated by the growing problem of income disparity and more recently, the coronavirus pandemic. But community leaders in Jackson are teaming up with local chefs to combat the issue through Sunshine for All, a pilot program sponsored by Dole packaged foods. Chef Nick Wallace, an Edwards native, says he wants to use his platform as one way to address local food insecurity. He tells our Michael Guidry one way to do this is by embracing the slow food movement. I'm using my platform to to address, you know, the the local side of things and and how we need to slow it down just a bit. Um, The slow food movement wasn't just talked about or created just because um, the slow food movement just just means that you know it, it means in that pre- preparation from beginning to end. So if if you know I want to use my platform just to get people's attention that we need to slow it down. And 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 the reason why fast foods and all that is very popular is because it's it's very convenient. It's quick, you know. So but it's a lot of creative ways that you do you can do your lifestyle by getting your kids involved to cut that time down in half, but not that hard. So, you know, it's, it's all about being able to see examples out there. It's just like watching a video, you know, as soon as you see it and all, you kind of got it. So, you know, creating that, that lifestyle and showing that example, you know, I think it's going to be able to, 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 to just get people's attention on how you need to slow down your life just a bit and bring that back into, 
that naturalness of vegetation and local meats, you know, things, things that's local and cook things, you know, put your hands on things, you know, creating family meals and, 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 and doing meal preps and things like that and bringing in fruits and vegetables into your lifestyle really, really works. You are part of this new pilot program called Sunshine for All, and it's designed to address some of these things about getting kids um, and families in the kitchen together, working with food, cooking food themselves, using affordable, locally grown produce. What can you tell us about this this pilot program, Sunshine for All, that you're a part of? Yeah, so Sunshine for All is um, is, is, is created by Dole, Dole Sunshine. And I love the uh, Sunshine for All. I love the, the, the name of it because it represents for us all. And, you know, sometimes, you know, people can – can think that they've been forgotten, especially when a grocery store moves out of your neighborhood, when the streets are bad, when you don't see no farmer's market, when you don't see those things right there, you think really, honestly, that you're forgotten. And what you've got to lean on is local convenience stores and things like that to survive in a way. But that right there is nothing that helps our family. So Sunshine for All this, this program comes into that, you know, that area. It meets the people where they are, and it brings all these community leaders together and brings up that responsiveness that it tells people that, hey, no, we are here. So it's such a great thing. It's such a great thing that, you know, I love about the Sunshine for All because it just meets the people where they are. Part of this program, from what I understand, it's also addressed the, 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 con- the, the problem of food deserts. Um, and Jackson is a food desert, despite being a metropolitan area. How can addressing food deserts and, and changing food deserts and, and, and evolving food deserts uh, into places where there can be sustainable produce, uh, how does that help change a community? It, it, it helps change a community because it brings that, you know, that attention. It spotlights that area um, into this program brings healthy foods with it. So we give you that example. We, we, we provide meals to families. We, we provide video content. We, we provide recipes. And this is just the, 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 you know, the tip of the iceberg is where it's going because it's going to start having pop-up markets and all. So it brings up that awareness. It brings the, that, that vegetable content, that fruits and vegetable content to you, so it, it only does is spotlights it. But that right there is what you need to build up that energy um, to everybody and show them, hey, you know, something is coming. It's a whole different atmosphere. The environment will change. And that's the, the good thing about the start of the Sunshine for All. Chef Nick Wallace is an Edwards native and a Jackson-based culinary artist. Nick, thank you so much for what you're doing to uh, help families and address the growing concern of, of food deserts. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. The Boys and Girls Club of Central Mississippi is serving as the hub for the new program. Director Penny Ainsworth says it's fitting to centralize the campaign where the kids are. Literally, we're in a hub where kids come, right? And so um, our day-to-day action is to transform the lives of young people as they um, come into the Boys and Girls Clubs um, right now and during school hours and then throughout the summer. And so in January um, of 2020, um, Dole came down. They were interested 
and our food desert and, and, and trying to help us figure out a way to um, to offset that and, and bring about some type of solution to help young people um, be able to, to have access to fresh fruits and vegetables and a healthier lifestyle. How will the program be utilized to, to distribute food to the kids that the Boys and Girls Club serves? 500 meals, um, hot meals, that... Um, that Dole would partner with three um, local um, chefs who actually prepare the food fresh, utilizing um, some of Dole's recipes that integrate fresh fruit and vegetables in, into the meal, as well as um, we have the farmer's market set up so they can purchase, utilizing EBT or any variety of ways to pay, um, fresh fruit and vegetables that are at a discounted rate. Um, so literally what it's doing is helping our young people and our families literally shift their paradigm and in being introduced to these wonderful food opportunities. Um, and spreading the sunshine for all is what, what those stand for. It's literally integrating that um, into our area. I mean, because we are in a food desert. You talk about shifting the paradigm. Um, we all understand how important it is for kids to eat healthy, but it's also about raising the awareness of, of how to create healthy meals. So tell us a little bit more about, I mean, yet we know you're feeding them, but there's more to it. What, what, what are you doing to cultivate the culture within these young people on healthy eating habits and healthy cooking? Well, we're taking it from the mind, body, and the soul. And so in order to make sure that they, it, it kind of is a wraparound service, we're also offering the culinary arts um, programs where the kids can come inside the clubs and um, participate in um, cooking classes. And so we've hired a chef. Uh, we're going to partner with Chef Wallace, and the kids will actually come in, and they will choose meals to prepare weekly. And so from the Boys and Girls Club perspective, it's about the mind, nourishing the mind, body, and the soul. Penny Ainsworth is the director of the Boys and Girls Club of Central Mississippi. Penny, thank you so much, and good luck with this program. Thank you, dear Liam. Jackson, with one grocery store for every 10,000 residents, is one of the South's largest food deserts. The program aims to address the issue through meals, pop-up farmers markets, cooking camps, and sustainable learning gardens. Coming up in our book club, Furious Hours, Murder, Fraud, and the Last Trial of Harper Lee. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Hi, I'm Walt Grayson. You can now listen to the wild, weird, and wonderful stories of Mississippi with Mile Marker. The TARDIS is our little free library here in Mines. It's the TARDIS from the Doctor Who series. Join me as we hit the roads of Mississippi on Mile Marker. Surprisingly, for a small town in Mississippi, there are a lot of folks who know exactly what it is. You can listen by going to mpbonline.org slash radio or by using your favorite podcasting app. Mile Marker, a Mississippi Roads podcast. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. In a true crime story from the 1970s, a rural preacher was accused of murdering five family members. He escaped justice until he was shot dead by a relative at the funeral of the last victim. The relative's lawyer was the same attorney who represented the dead preacher. Enter one of America's most beloved authors, Harper Lee, who attended the trial daily and spent many years working on her own version of the case. Casey Sepp is the author of Furious Hours, Murder, Fraud, and the Last Trial of Harper Lee. 
She was the daughter of a lawyer. One of her older sisters was a lawyer. Now, they didn't practice much criminal law, but she was absolutely fascinated by crime and liked to go sit in on trials in the local courthouse. One of her older sisters had lived through the Leopold and Loeb case and followed that uh, with absolute attention. And Lee herself loved Sherlock Holmes. She read true detective stories as a kid. What led her to go with Capote to Kansas was a pre-existing interest in crime, and she continued to read true crime books her whole life. Uh, She followed her nose not only as a writer, but as a reader as well. Tell us a little about this case that she followed. It's a really interesting story. So she came into the picture in 1977 when rural minister in Alexander City, Alabama, was gunned down at the funeral of his stepdaughter. Now, that would have been newsworthy in its own right, but he was gunned down at that funeral by another relative of the young girls who believed, in fact, that the reverend had been the one to murder her. And it was an incredible case in this part of Alabama. People had been following it for years because, in fact, that stepdaughter was only the fifth of the reverend's relatives to turn up dead under suspicious circumstances. He had life insurance policies on all of them. So the motive was clear to the folks around Lake Martin that he was killing these family members for the insurance money. And when the police couldn't stop him and when they couldn't hold him responsible for these crimes or convict him of murder, another one of the girl's relatives gunned him down. So Harper Lee came to town in 1977. She arrived and covered the trial of the vigilante who murdered the reverend and got to know law enforcement officers and lawyers and coroners and folks who had been involved in the story from 1970 until 1977 when she got to town. How much time did she spend researching this case? As best we can tell, and some of this is from correspondence she wrote at the time, some of this is putting together a chronology of the interviews she did, because of course, for some of these folks, getting interviewed by Harper Lee was the most exciting thing that ever happened to them, so they have a very clear memory of it. And piecing together all of that evidence and and documentary evidence, it seems like she was in town for at least nine months, almost a year, and that ongoingly, um, for a decade after, she attempted to turn all of that reporting into a book. So we have letters from her to Gregory Peck in the early 80s, where four or five years into this, she's still trying to shape all of her reporting into a book. What happened to the book? The million-dollar question. So I think very straightforwardly, Harper Lee's life as a writer was complicated and difficult, and she was a perfectionist, and she struggled with a lot of projects after To Kill a Mockingbird, both getting to work on them and completing them. So there's the kind of writerly problem, and some people would call it writer's block, but she seems to have had a more complicated relationship to writing and how to do it. On top of that were what people close to her would say were emotional problems and addiction problems. She had a drinking problem that was exacerbated by her struggles with writing, and she was known to be a sort of volatile personality and prone to depression. And all of these things together made writing in general difficult for her. With regard to the Maxwell case, this true crime project, on top of those kind of general frustrations and difficulties with writing were some really specific ones about this case. And the details of the original crimes were extremely complicated and complex. There had not been any convictions. In fact, some of the deaths weren't even officially declared homicides because a cause of death could never be determined. And there was a lot of civil litigation around the life insurance. So Harper Lee joked with some people in town that she was struggling because the book was turning out to be a history of life insurance. 
So there were there were specific difficulties with this book and general difficulties with writing. Now, having said that, there are a lot of people I interviewed who are absolutely convinced she wrote the whole book and just didn't publish it. So it's a mystery on top of a mystery, both how much she actually wrote and whatever she wrote, what she decided to do about it. Do you know if Harper Lee ever followed other crimes such as this? There's no indication she took any as seriously as this. One funny story I was told was Harper Lee had two older sisters, and one lived in Monroeville and one lived over in Eufaula. And the sister in Eufaula was actually following a case not unlike the Reverend Maxwell. So it was a local minister accused of killing two of his wives, not at the same time, obviously, but in succession. And she followed that and reported on it to Harper Lee, but there doesn't seem to be any evidence that Harper Lee ever came to town or did any interviewing. They just like to read crime coverage, and they talked about cases like this all the time, local and national stories. But again, the Maxwell case is truly significant because of the amount of time and money and resources in general she devoted to it. So there's no indication that she ever undertook another writing project like this, even though she followed a lot of criminal stories her whole life long. This book is called Furious Hours, Murder, Fraud, and the Last Trial of Harper Lee. We've been speaking with its author, Casey Sepp. Thank you, Casey. Of course. Thanks so much. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. And if your app lets you, leave a comment or review. We really do appreciate it. Remember, you can always get in touch with MPB News on Facebook and Twitter. And fresh episodes of the podcast are posted every weekday morning. I'm Karen Brown. Thanks for listening. This is Mississippi Edition from MPB Think Radio.